0: I'm not afraid to Hi there, it's Megan Mitchell from Agents of Change. Thanks for checking out my podcast. If you enjoy the content, please check out my ASWB test prep courses for the bachelor's, master's, and clinical exams. Each Agents of Change course includes more than 30 key topics that closely match the ASWB KSA content areas. Our content is great for both auditory and visual learners and includes video walkthroughs, supplemental materials, hundreds of practice questions, and twice-monthly live study groups with me. You can learn more and get 10 free practice questions at agentsofchangeprep.com. Hi there, this is Megan Mitchell with Agents of Change Social Work Test Prep, and I'm here to bring you another Social Work Shorts. Today I'm going to be covering setting-specific tips and tricks for how to answer some of those questions that you will see on both the master's and clinical level exams. So when I say social work, specific tips, um, setting tips, what do I mean? So social work is a very diverse field. Um, that's probably what drew a lot of us to this field is that we can practice in a variety of different settings. So some of you may be school social workers or in a hospital setting or community-based workers. There's even clinical tracks and um, more policy or administration tracks. It's a very vast field. Um What makes this exam so hard is that most people in practice will specialize in one particular area within the field. So for me, that has always been school social work. I've always been a school social worker. However, this test is going to ask you questions about a variety of different settings. So you have to have knowledge of what it means to work in a hospital setting or what it means to work if um, you're in a school or if you're in an inpatient facility. Um, When and how to intervene might vary between the different settings because what I do as a school social worker is probably much different than what someone would do in an inpatient setting. So why this test can feel so challenging is because we have to have information and have a pretty generalist knowledge of some different types of settings. I will give some advice here. Brush up in areas you're unfamiliar with. So um, for me, that was hospital social work. I've never worked in a hospital. Um, That was also working with elderly patients. Working in a school, Um, Obviously, working with those patients that are 65 and older was something that was just kind of foreign to me. So um, it's important that you brush up on areas that are outside of your wheelhouse, outside of your expertise, because you may see questions about different social work settings um, and settings you've never worked in. So you have to have at least some general knowledge of the different settings um, on this exam, and we'll go over some of the major ones. The first one we'll start with is hospital settings. So if you see um, a question that says you are a hospital social worker, that's gonna key you off that you're working in a hospital setting. So in a hospital setting, you want to determine why this client is in the hospital. Most of the time, people are not just generally in the hospital, um, Routinely, right? Usually maybe there was an illness or an injury, so maybe they're there for medical help or mental health care. Find out why the client is there. That's going to give you some information about what to do. Also know in hospital settings, um, hospital or medical settings, you are most likely going to be working as part of a multidisciplinary team. You need to know what a multidisciplinary team is for this exam. What that means, it's just a team made up of a variety of different professionals. So in a hospital, think a client might be working with, um, they're gonna probably have a doctor on their case, there might be nurses, occupational therapists, feeding therapists, there could be a variety of different people working for this client. It's important on a multidisciplinary team that everyone's on the same page so there might be meetings frequently between the team members and remember everyone has a different approach right doctors might have a very different approach than we have as social workers so you got to make sure everyone's on the same page Um, and there may be conflicts that arise that might be on what's best for that client treatment approaches if conflict arises in a medical setting um, it's important that there's open dialogue um There should be problem-solving approaches um, to help solve this disagreement amongst team members. So biggest things to know for hospital, why is my client in the hospital? Um, I'm a member of a multidisciplinary team, what does this mean? And if there is conflict amongst team members, how can we engage in healthy, productive dialogue to um, work in the best interest of this client? School settings. So this is definitely my expertise. Um, I've been working in schools for over eight years. Um, Some things you need to know about school settings and social work in school settings. Remember, in most school settings, um, not all because there is adult education and some alternative programs, in most school settings, you're going to be working with minors. So most kids are going to be 18 years and young, 18 years or younger if you see the age of a student in a school and it's below 18 if they're a minor you always want to be thinking i have obligations as a mandated reporter so that should always be triggering for you if you suspect abuse or neglect report to cps however you have to have enough information to report so i tell people if you are questioning if abuse or neglect is happening you need to say do i have enough information that would allow me to make a report for example Anytime a student would come in and disclose that they are being um, subject to abuse or neglect, that's going to be a report. However, if we don't have enough information, say they came in with um, a sprained ankle, there could be a variety of reasons why a student would sprain their ankle. Just coming in with a sprained ankle is not enough to report to CPS. However, if there was more information like the student was pushed down the stairs and that's why they're by a, um, an adult or a family member that would lead us to have enough information to report. So you have to have enough information to report. Um, always, I also say one doubt report. Also, in school settings, social workers, we do not administer testing for special education, so we're not giving any sort of IQ tests or anything that would determine any sort of cognitive um, disability. We also do not diagnose disabilities. We may give input um, we might we would do bio biopsychosocial assessments, social histories, but that really diagnostic for disability purposes in the school should be completed by either the school psychologist, if the school does not have a psychologist, and outside educational psychologists should be doing these um diagnostic batteries. It's just outside our expertise. Um collateral information is huge in school settings. Um, that's because children have a lot of different people, um, that know what is going on in their life. So you might need to talk with teachers. You might need to talk with parents to kind of get that complete picture for what's going on, what's leading to that presenting problem, right? Teachers are going to have a lot more access to the students than we do on a day-to-day basis, so they might have some good um, information on maybe some triggers or maybe some strengths or weaknesses of that student. Also important to talk to parents because we want to see how that student presents at home. Is this a problem that is occurring in both settings, the home and the school setting, or is this just a school problem? It can give us a lot of information. Also, you're going to be collaborating with teachers a lot in school settings, and they know sometimes teachers don't have the same um, mindset that social workers do, um, so remember that, and remember that um, teachers might just see things a little bit differently, that, that might Not saying that's a good or a bad thing, but they um, are with that student a lot throughout the day. Um, So they might have information that's going to help us best serve that student. And it should be done in collaboration with the teacher because we could say all these things to do with the student. But if the teacher's not on board, it's probably not going to be implemented correctly. Okay, child welfare. So child welfare or CPS workers or whatever the um, title is in your particular area, um, child protective workers, they're there to investigate and assess safety, right? Oftentimes people call and make calls to CPS because there is suspicions of abuse or neglect. So CPS workers are there to assess the safety and severity of a situation, right? So they might be doing interviews with a child or interviewing parents or going into the home and, and doing home visits. It, in child welfare, safety comes first. Um, that's their main purpose is in to ensure children um, are safe. Goal of CPS. So I, there, this is such a myth that's out there that the goal of CPS is to remove children from the home. That's not the goal of CPS. The goal of CPS is to um, provide services and resources to preserve the family. So the number one goal is to keep the family unit together as much as possible, as much as it is safe. Um, So usually wraparound services are provided. Um, Maybe that's counseling. Maybe that's substance abuse treatment. It's important to know that removing the child from the home is often a last resort. Um, So CPS worker is very few times going to go in and immediately remove that child unless it is a severe, severe, severe safety need. So just know that um, and when you're approaching questions like removal is often a last resort. Another thing child welfare social workers do is permanency planning. So this is um, a process done to um, meet the needs of a child that is going to be receiving some sort of long-term care outside the home. So maybe they're going to a foster care placement or they're going to um, an out-of-home placement or they're going to be placed in um, kinship care with another family member. Permanency planning basically is to be in the best interest of that child to make sure that their needs are going to be met and just make sure that this process is Supporting the child in the best way that we can. Obviously, removing them from the home is can be very traumatic. There can bring a lot of challenges. So, permanently planning is really looking at the best situation for that child, um, or it could be multiple children if there are siblings involved. Okay, if you're in an inpatient or psychiatric treatment setting. Um, know why that client is there again, right? Most people are not in an inpatient or psychiatric treatment facility, so you need to determine safety. There's probably a reason why a client's in inpatient or psychiatric treatment. There was probably some sort of event or some sort of safety concern that led them um, to, to be in this treatment setting. Um, So big things you're going to do in this setting is risk assessment. So you want to be assessing for suicidality, um, assessing for homicidal thoughts, assessing for a lot of crisis um, intervention too, like is this client in a state of crisis? So risk assessment is going to be crucial because we need to determine if clients are safe enough to make decisions on their own, right? Um, Oftentimes maybe there was an event and something happened where the client maybe needs to be in an inpatient or psychiatric Um, setting because maybe they were not in um, the best state of mind and that led them to need this sort of treatment. Communication with other team members is also key in these, right? If I see a client in a psychiatric treatment um, facility and the client is um, making homicidal um, threats I need to communicate that with other team members. You would not want the doctor to discharge this client if we have information that is going to be really crucial to their care. So communication is key, documentation is key, because remember here you're probably working with other uh, multidisciplinary teammates as well. Discharge planning is big in these settings, but however remember we can't discharge clients if they are considered to be a danger to themselves or others. Um, there are times when they might be there voluntarily or involuntary. Um, if we truly feel that this client is a danger to themselves or others like they have active suicidal or homicidal ideations, they're making threats and we um, feel that them leaving, would be a danger to themselves or others. We can put an involuntary hold on them um, for their own safety. So remember, we're just there's a lot of clinical judgment done in this um, treatment setting because safety of the client and uh, those around the client are often important. Community based settings. So community based settings have a long history. Um, these settings are often neighborhood settings or community based nonprofits. Um, You might have heard them referred to as community based organizations, very big in neighborhoods. Um, They see some of our most vulnerable clients often because they see um, a variety of different clients and sometimes have free services or sliding scale services. Um, And like I said, they see a wide variety of um, populations, ages and um, presenting problems. So they're there to provide social services and basic needs to address whatever is going on in that client's life. So that might mean that the client needs resources, that might be housing, shelter, clothing, food. Um, They might need overall health and wellness um, assistance. So maybe they have some medical concerns that they need some help with. The basic point of community-based services is to improve the overall functioning of that client and reduce social isolation, right? Because they're in their community seeking support, seeking services. So here in these community-based settings, you're going to want to definitely think of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Basic needs have to come first. Um, Does the client have housing? Does the client have access to food, shelter? Um, All of those things that's going to be important to meet first. Um and then clients may need referrals to outside agencies. Some agencies will have a variety of different resources that can be offered, but if your agency for example doesn't offer substance abuse treatment, um they might need that client might need an outside referral. Also with community-based settings, you might be um, brokering, um, advocating, and working with a lot of different agencies, right? So maybe this client has a child and you need to talk with the daycare. So you just might need to get consent um, to be able to um, talk with other different entities. So consent and getting client consent um, for release of information might be big at community based settings. Um, wraparound approach is often common. So getting them, um, you know, lots of different supports to really target the specific needs of that client. So wraparound approach works really well in community-based settings. Okay, if you are in an administration or management setting, so now we're talking more of like a um, macro-based setting. So if you're in a role that you're the administrator, you're upper management, Remember, you're often responsible for oversight of the agency. You might see terms like executive director or um, agency administrator. Those are some terms that might signal that you're in an administration or management setting. When you're in these roles, you're going to be responsible for, like I said, oversight of the agency and also supervision of staff. What those staff are doing is going to fall on you as that administrator. Um, if there's problems that come up in the agency, the administrator or the man, upper level management needs to examine the policies and procedures that are in place. And they're going to need to look at the agency's mission, right? So there might be some problems going on. Maybe it's a policy issue. Maybe there's policies that are not best serving the employees or the clients. Um, or maybe there's been a, a change and the mission is not really aligning with what's going on in the, the agency. So you might need to look at policies and procedures. You um, kind of need to take a lot, a deeper look. There's a lot of examination in um, some deeper uncovering of what's going on at the administration management level. Feedback is important for administrators. So you're going to want to get feedback about the agency from not only your clients. So what the clients think of our services is important. If it's best serving the clients, that's important. But also you want to get feedback from employees. Um, there's nothing worse than staff that feel like they have admin that don't listen to them, um, or don't even want to hear their problems. So you want to get feedback from employees because if your, um, employees are burnt out and they're overworked, like you're going to see turnover, you're going to see a lot of, um, negative effects of that. So you want to get feedback from clients and employees and really have an active role in, in managing, um, that, it's important that your employees are properly trained. If you're seeing a lot of, of your employees are having difficulty, say with um, case notes, maybe you need to consider um, additional trainings. We can't assume that clients are doing a bad job just because they want to do a bad job. We need to consider, do they have the tools to be able to be successful? So you might um, be looking at agency-wide trainings, or maybe employees need some a little bit of, a, of additional assistance, but we want to make sure that our employees have the training, the skills, the resources they need to be successful. So, remember admin there's um it's just more macro work that you are looking at for that. Okay. Now we're going to jump into a practice question. So how this will work is I'm going to read the practice question. I'm going to give you a few moments to think over the answer choices, and then we will use the um, process of elimination model and pull out some of the key terms that you should be picking up on um, to get to the correct answer. A school social worker meets with the parents of a 13-year-old boy who has an IQ of 70. The social worker works directly with the son in his special education classroom. The parents report that their son has been smoking marijuana given to him by the brother of a classmate who is 19. What should the social worker do first? A, suggest that the parents provide closer supervision of their son. Explain to the parents that a report must be made to CPS. C, encourage the parents to confront the neighbor. D, recommend that the parents speak with the principal and report the incident. Go ahead and read that question stem and read the answer choices. Okay, things that are important here. Where is your setting you're in a school? You're in a school, and our client is 13 years old, so we are dealing with a minor. You should be thinking mandated reporting is my client safe. Um, also important to note here, the client has an IQ of 70. This you you this requires you to have some knowledge of IQ scores. This is a borderline um, IQ, so there may be some cognitive deficits. Um, Student said. Um, students or people with an IQ of seventy definitely can still function, but there just may be some um, challenges in some things. Also, to note here, he's in a special education classroom. Parents are reporting their son has been given marijuana from the by the brother of a classmate who is nineteen. So what we have here, um you're in a school. one of the students you're working with who's thirteen and has um, some sort of special needs has been smoking marijuana that's given to him by an adult, and that adult um, has a brother that's a classmate. What should the social worker do first? When you get first questions, you wanna be thinking, there might be things I would have the client do um, later down the road, but where is my first starting point? And whenever you're approaching any question, you should be thinking safety first. So given that, we can start to eliminate. So. Process of elimination is going to help you to approach these questions because if you can get it down to two answers, you're going to be in a much better place. Try and get every question on this exam down to at least two answer choices. So what I would eliminate first is A, suggest the parents provide closer supervision of their son um that may be a discussion that we have later down the line but that does not address the presenting problem and this does not address the client's safety it's also um kind of placing judgment on the parents a is eliminated another one that i would um eliminate is c encourage the parents to confront the neighbor That's not the first thing you're going to do. That could also put the parents in more danger. That could also just bring up a variety of different problems. We would never encourage the parents to go confront this person themselves. That does not help the presenting problem. And um, it's just, it could potentially lead to a dangerous situation. So C is out. We're now down to B, explain to the parents that a report must be made to CPS. Or D, recommend that the parents speak with the principal and report the incident. So given that we're thinking safety first, which one best answers our question? So we have to ask ourselves, do we have enough information here to even report to CPS? We know an adult is giving a minor marijuana. Yes, we do have enough information to report. So D is out, recommend that the parents speak with the principal and report the incident. We might do that at a later time, given that it's a classmate. However, that does not ensure safety of this student right now. This is something that would be reportable to CPS, so B is the correct answer. We would explain to parents that a report must be made to CPS. So um, as you can see, the answers in red were ones that we eliminated, and our answer in green is the correct answer. We have enough information here to go ahead and make a report. Adult giving a minor with some sort of differing needs, marijuana Um, that needs to be reported right away. Okay, I hope that you found that helpful. Here's a little bit more information. If you're looking for more study contact, I have paid study materials. I have single sessions on a variety of different topics. I also have package sessions. My package sessions are crammed with information. There's now over 25 hours of audio and visual material. It's going, the sessions are going to be similar to my free YouTube videos, but they're gonna go really deep. Um, I present a variety of different questions, strategies, and techniques. Um, They're great for audio and visual learners. I created this content because that's how I learn best, just through audio and visual. Um, If you have any questions, you have my contact information here, or you can check out Gumroad, that is where my content lives. And of course, I wanna finish out by saying, Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your studying journey, no matter how big or small that is. Um, Be confident in all of this hard work that you're putting into your studying. um, And I wish you the very best of luck wherever you may be in your studying journey. Thank you for tuning in.